Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Toronto, Canada to discuss ARDS and COVID-19, insights a year into the pandemic. Uh, so my name is Eddie Fan. I'm an intensivist from the University of Toronto. Great. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, um, Eddie. Uh, we interviewed you last year at the start of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, and we discussed um, why odds is so important. For the benefit of our ATS community, maybe you could recap for us, you know, in the COVID-19 pandemic, why is it so important for us to understand and treat odds? Well, I think it's important because, uh, as we learned in the lung safe study, early recognition of ARDS is important because that typically leads clinicians to initiate a set of interventions which have been shown with with evidence to improve outcomes. And so recognizing COVID-19-associated ARDS is important because then that might trigger the use of uh, things like low tidal volume ventilation, perhaps higher levels of PEEP, trials of prone positioning, so interventions that we know have been associated with um, a survival advantage in these patients. So I think that's why it's, uh, that's the main reason why it's important to, to recognize uh, ARDS in COVID-19 pneumonia patients. So the world in early 2020 was very different from what it is now. Maybe you could describe for our audience what were the biggest challenges um, in terms of managing art um, and uh, uh, what we were uh, facing at the time. Yeah, I think um, as now many uh, clinicians around the world have come to recognize is that, uh, you know, this was a new um, new infection leading to a new uh, disease uh, that people hadn't seen before. So there were a lot of unknowns um, and a lot of uncertainties at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, which obviously led to a lot of um, challenges for people treating these patients, many of who got, who, uh, got very sick very quickly and were admitted to intensive care units uh, requiring life support. Um, and then I think the added challenge was is that, again, um, as some reports started to come out from places in the world where COVID-19 had hit first, you started to get this um, spread of ideas by, you know, social media, press release, uh, lay media, and even traditional sources like journals, really with, you know, anecdotes, case series, relatively low-quality evidence, if you will, or data, uh, that was driving many people to make uh, decisions or changes in management based on this um, either paucity of evidence or relatively low quality evidence. So I think that really, you know, made it, made it challenging for clinicians to manage these patients. I think, um, and it's, you know, just the, the um, in the age of social media, I would say the other challenge has been is that there's such a deluge of information. It's sort of like drinking from the water hose and often you can get conflicting uh, advice from um, various sources, and that also made it challenging for clinicians to adjudicate and decide what were high-quality uh, sources of uh, evidence uh, and uh, advice on how to treat patients versus those that uh, were really conjecture and um, could be dismissed out of hand. And I think all these things, um, coupled with the workload and the burden of these patients uh, in hospitals and intensive care units around the world, made it very challenging. I would say fast-forward now to the start of 2021, and fortunately, as the pandemic has uh, gone on, we've certainly seen more rigorous data come out, more um, higher quality data and studies, and that's really helped 
to maybe clarify some of the confusion and the early uh, conflicting data and help put us on a better footing to understand how best to manage um, the sickest patients with uh, COVID-19 ARDS. Maybe you could just uh, dive into the role that um, PPE uh, testing and uh, the um, concern about BiPAP versus high flow um, that was uh, very prominent in the early few months. Yeah, I think, and I would say that even now, uh, we're still trying to sort out um, um, where best to place these uh, sorts of um, uh, interventions. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, again, um, the concern around the possibility of aerosolization and transmitting um, COVID-19 in these high-risk patients uh, to other patients, other healthcare workers was um, was daunting for many um, for many health systems. Some outright uh, banning the use of these kinds of um, interventions in patients with respiratory failure and moving quickly towards intubation to provide respiratory support when needed. Um, and again, I think from um, really just a uh, a more general and superficial understanding of the transmissibility of the virus. I think as the pandemic has gone on, we've gotten some uh, some more data um, suggesting perhaps that non-invasive ventilation um, and high-flow nasal cannula perhaps are not as aerosolizing and as, uh, as dangerous, if you will, from a transmission point of view as earlier thought. And certainly we've seen many more um, hospitals uh, utilize this therapy. I think prudently still um, having clinicians who are treating these patients um, wear appropriate PPE to prevent uh, transmission. But certainly, I think uh, this is one of the things that has evolved over the course of the pandemic, but there's still uh, more uh, uh, data that's required and a a few studies ongoing to, to evaluate where the sort of optimal timing, optimal patient population, and optimal clinical situations to deploy things like high flow nasal cannula or um, non-invasive ventilation. Great. So maybe for the benefit of our audience, you could just recap for us, you know, one year into COVID-19, which interventions and therapies uh, are proven to uh, benefit patients? Uh, Which uh, therapies and interventions can cause harm in those patients? So, you know, soberingly, I would say specifically when thinking about ARDS, um, the vast majority of data and, and clinical studies that have gone on in the last year to the pandemic probably appropriately have focused on therapeutics aimed at, um, um, you know, direct antiviral effects on the virus, prophylactic uh, effects on high-risk uh, groups in the population and healthcare workers, um, and therapeutics directed at um, modulating the immune response that could occur uh, following COVID-19 um, uh, disease. And, and so there's been very little actually direct <laughs> clinical uh, trials, for instance, focused specifically on ARDS, for instance, when you think about the, ventila- the, the ventilatory support, uh, adjunctive therapies, and this sort of thing. So not a lot has actually changed in um, the actual evidence base around the ventilatory management of patients with COVID-19-associated ARDS. And the same, the message that I gave um, uh, early last year still Uh, resonates today, which is that, again, uh, what the data has shown is is that um, more likely than not, the vast majority of patients who have COVID-19-associated ARDS, it uh, resembles, for the most part, ARDS of other etiologies, and therefore, um, all the evidence 
and data that we have around the best management of these patients still applies. So using things, again, like low tidal volume ventilation, perhaps higher PEEP and prone positioning in patients who have more moderate to severe hypoxemia, um, in those that fail these kinds of interventions and are appropriate, referral to uh, an ECMO-capable center would be, um, would be reasonable. Specifically dealing with the, each of these interventions, um, let's uh, jump into low tidal volume ventilation. So there's a range of between 4 to 8 cc's per kilogram ideal body weight. How do you decide which of those to use, 4 versus 6 versus 8 or in between? Um, again, at, at this point, um, you know, using the data that we have from um, ARDS studies and chief amongst those uh, when speaking about low tidal volume ventilation, the ARDS network study, the starting point would be um, 6 mils per kilo um, uh, predicted body weight. And from there, titrating tidal volume, um, depending on the patient's needs and the patient's uh, blood gas, uh, you know, lower if uh, tolerated, uh, if needed, to um, 4 mils per kilo if the plateau airway pressure is above uh, 30 centimeters of water, and liberalizing that probably um, as patients improve and uh, their lung compliance and respiratory system compliance improves can uh, liberalize that up to eight uh, as needed. But again, as a as a starting point for most patients, um, would target six mils per kilo and then move up or down uh, from there depending on their clinical situation uh, and their and their blood gas. So one of the challenges with COVID-19 is that it disproportionately affected uh, older men who were uh, sometimes very obese. Um, so you mentioned the use of higher PEEP, and uh, maybe you could tell us how you would uh, titrate your PEEP and also uh, how you'd accept higher plateau pressures if they were obese. Uh, how, how would you go? Um, what limits would you set? Yeah, so this is a, a question that not only is, it, uh, you know, important for uh, COVID-related uh, ARDS, but also a challenge uh, sort of ventilating the very obese or morbidly obese patients even uh, outside of COVID-related uh, ARDS. Um, and again, the use of higher PEEP here may be important. Um, again, as I think we discussed uh, in the earlier podcast, uh, a good starting point, um, not the ending point, but a starting point could be would be to use a strategy of setting PEEP um, that is familiar to your institution. Um, and I would gather that one method, one such method that might be familiar to many institutions is the use of the PEEP FIO2 table from, um, again, the ARDS network, amongst other clinical trials that have used a similar method. Um, other alternatives could be, for instance, using um, the, the PEEP uh, setting strategy in the EXPRESS trial, the French trial, or um, uh, PEEP uh, set by uh, things like stress index. But again, that's something that's simple and available and easy for clinicians to use. The PEEP-FIO2 table is a good starting point for these patients to set PEEP. And again, I think in the challenging patient where um, using higher levels of PEEP doesn't lead to the response uh, that you might, um, you might uh, expect uh, when you're titrating up or down from the PEEP-FIO2 table uh, or you're reaching with higher levels of PEEP plateau pressures uh, that uh, might uh, appear injurious, that's when customizing from this starting point would make sense. And so for centers, for instance, that have the capability using additional tools, something that might be very useful in these challenging patients would be something like esophageal pressure measurements, to see, to measure the esophageal pressure, to understand what the chest wall contribution is um, to respiratory system compliance, and then seeing if you could customize PEEP uh, further from that point, or reassure yourselves that while you're applying high levels of PEEP, um, 
that the plateau pressure that uh, you're seeing while injurious, the actual transpulmonary pressure or the true descending pressure of the lung is actually not in an injurious, uh, in an injurious level. So I think, again, a starting point for most places would be something simple, like a PFFO2 table. I would look at changes in oxygenation. Again, this is by no means perfect, but again, a good starting point. And in those patients who remain challenging, um, despite using this relatively simple and easily available method for keep setting at the bedside, then using additional tools like esophageal manometry might be useful. And I think in places where perhaps that may not be available or you're not reassured by what you see with some of these adjunctive measurements, then again, in a morbidly obese patient, um, perhaps proning the patient would be a very helpful strategy um, to provide more protective ventilation. So let's jump into pruning because it, it, it does have a beneficial effect. How do you um, uh, order your pruning? Um, uh, what time intervals do you put in? Um, uh, do you do it twice a day, once a day? Uh, what's the data for uh, prone, position, prone positioning in arts? Yeah, so so um, again, like uh, using uh, the evidence that's available from us uh, and most recently from the PROCEVA study and from evidence-based guidelines, we would typically prone the patient for 16 to 18 hours um, and then supinate them uh, for the remaining uh, eight hours of the day as, as tolerated. Um, and uh, this is something that, again, can be done. Um, it's a relatively low-tech low intervention. Could be done, could be done um, just with a team of uh, clinicians and, and, uh, and um, at the bedside. Um, I know that some centers uh, um, like using fancy technology like proning beds or other adjuncts, but uh, can actually be done just with uh, the human resources available uh, at hand. And, uh, and again, we keep the patients in the prone position for, again, the 16 to 18 hours uh, per day. And again, this is a maneuver that's less an oxygenation rescue maneuver, but uh, is a lung protection maneuver. So those with moderate to severe hypoxemia um, in the absence of contraindications should be put in the prone position as a lung protection maneuver rather than a um, rescue oxygenation maneuver. Yeah, and we've had our proning parties, and it's actually amazed me how quickly um, a group of doctors and, and, and nurses and inspired the chain therapists can go through, and I think they flipped six patients in less than 30 minutes. It's, it's really impressive once they get it going. So you mentioned 16 hours. So some clinicians have said, well, maybe we should just do, you know, nine hours of proning and then three hours of supining. Some have raised the issue that, you know, maybe that uh, increases the risk of uh, extubation given the fact that you're flipping them twice a day instead of, uh, just once, um, without uh, actually giving them any benefits, given that the study that showed benefits was actually for 16 hours. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, again, I think these are good questions. And again, these are like similar kinds of questions uh, that uh, were abound about all kinds of man management strategies or, or, or changes to the management strategy of COVID-19-related ARDS early in the pandemic when um, people were trying all kinds of things and getting all kinds of results. So what I would say is, is that it's possible that a lower dose, if you will, um, uh, and here in dose, we're talking about the duration in which they're prone, uh, could lead to similar effects or similar benefits. Um, uh, but the challenge is, of course, at this point, we don't have a lot of data uh, comparing whether nine hours of proning or eight hours of proning or you know two proning sessions per day versus one prolonged proning session um, are equivalent or that one is superior to the other. What I might just caution uh, people um, is, is that I think proning is an excellent uh, 
uh, example of how physiologic observations and mechanistic studies at the bedside uh, over the course of decades um, and a refinement of clinical trials evaluating prone positioning over time ultimately led to the landmark trial, the Prosevich study, that showed the benefit, the dramatic benefit of proning on uh, mortality in patients with ARDS. And, and those physiologic refinements over time were gradually shifting the population away from, you know, sort of a heterogeneous group of um, ARDS patients, some who had very uh, mild hypoxemia, because the signal was consistently seen amongst the sickest subgroup. And also, as the trials moved over time, they focused on the idea that longer duration of proning actually was, uh, was where the signal was for benefit. So as the trials moved over those decades, they moved towards focusing on sicker or more hypoxemic patients, and so more severe lung injury, and they also moved the intervention towards longer duration proning versus shorter duration proning. So I guess the data now would suggest that proning for at least 16 to 18 hours uh, makes sense. That's where all the data is. And I would just, again, caution uh, people who are opting for shorter periods that, again, the refinement of this intervention over time has really shifted it from shorter duration proning to longer duration proning. Gotcha. So one of the great advances in managing COVID-19 was the, the publication um, of the benefit of Decadron in patients with COVID-19 um, ARDS. And when we treat patients with ARDS, we often end up giving them paralytics if they um, end up uh, having ventosynchrony or, or very severe uh, oxygen issues. Maybe you could describe what your practice is because uh, there's been very little data on there on uh, in terms of the optimal management of using paralytics with the steroids and the long-term effects. Yeah, these are definitely a concern. And, and again, uh, even outside of COVID-19, we're becoming increasingly aware of all the um, uh, potential complications from um, uh, the exposures that we provide critically ill patients while they're in the ICU that perhaps may not have uh, many short-term effects or may even have beneficial short-term effects like on mortality, but may have, unfortunately, deleterious long-term effects like ICU-acquired weakness, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and amongst those, you know, steroids have been implicated in some of these things, certainly um, has been associated in some studies with the, with the, um, with increased incidence of ICU-acquired weakness, um, has been associated in some studies actually with a protective effect on post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and so uh, this is definitely a concern. And obviously, deep sedation and paralysis may be synergistic with that by causing forced immobility and more bed rest, which leads to more muscle wasting, um, which can, again, as accentuate the um, effects on muscle wasting and then the eventual development of weakness. So certainly these things together, if possible to avoid in our patients, uh, we would try to endeavor to do that or at least shorten the duration uh, of that exposure as much as possible. I think given now that we have high-quality data from the recovery uh, trial showing that the steroids uh, are effective on short-term mortality and understanding the important uh, mortality associated with this syndrome, um, that giving that, those steroids seem uh, prudent in these patients. And in those patients who are on uh, dexamethasone and develop severe vent ventilation uh, asynchrony or are extremely hypoxemic and require deep sedation and paralysis to manage oxygen demand, um, again, the idea would be to minimize that exposure um, as much as possible to, ju to just the uh, minimal amount of time required to manage um, those challenges and then to stop paralysis and or lighten deep sedation uh, when the patient can tolerate it as soon as possible. And again, I would say that 
again, even outside of COVID-19 associated ARDS, that we should be assessing daily, at least, uh, for the ability to stop paralysis and or wean sedation uh, in these patients to, again, minimize that, that, that potentially uh, harmful exposure. So let's talk about combining these therapies. So uh, the patients will uh, mostly be on, um, on, on a decadron uh, for a period of time. If you're proning them, it looks like the initial studies that showed benefit, um, they used paralytics when they were proning the patients. So my question is, you know, how long should you be proning patients for, and what cost are you going to be having with use of paralytics while proning? Yeah, this is a good question. So this is part of the challenges that in the PROCEVA trial, uh, the vast majority of patients, actually in both groups, uh, received uh, paralysis uh, um, uh, for the trial, and the median uh, number of sessions in the prone positioning group or the intervention arm was about four and a half sessions or four and a half days uh, of proning. Um, so, uh, so you're talking about the potential for deep sedation and or paralysis for a relatively prolonged period of time. Again, um, you know, not specifically... Uh, tested in the trial, but um, I would say that we, what we've learned over the course of the pandemic where we've now proned many more patients than we had prior to the pandemic and gained that experience is that we found that we don't always have to keep par- patients paralyzed uh, to facilitate proning. So we've definitely um, had patients who have had deep sedation um, and, and managed to tolerate proning without the need uh, for paralysis. So again, it's just the idea that uh, you know, evaluating the ongoing need in your patients for continuous um, infusions of uh, paralysis. And the other uh, option could be, again, in terms of a, a strategy to spare exposure to neuromuscular blockade, could be that uh, proning patients with deep sedation but providing intermittent uh, neuromuscular blockade. So, again, um, as they develop uh, perhaps what looks like discomfort or asynchrony in the prone position, then perhaps even uh, boluses of neuromuscular blockade could be administered rather than a continuous infusion to, again, um, as a strategy to minimize the ultimate overall exposure um, to these uh, to these therapies. And again, it's hard to know, again, like uh, in from Proceva, because those, those um, interventions were given together, but certainly now, um, you know, uh, the data from the ROSE trial would, would suggest that perhaps continuous infusions of neuro, neuromuscular blockade may not be associated with uh, with um, with uh, the benefits that we had seen in the uh, accuracy trial from France, uh, but important caveat of the Rose trial being that many uh, patients who were already receiving neuromuscular blockade or those that clinicians thought would benefit from it were excluded from the from the Rose trial. And then let's add another layer to that. So a lot of our COVID patients. Uh, we find that they end up getting a, a acute kidney injury, and a number of them have to go on to um, dialysis. Um, what struck me is that uh, the importance of knowing that if the patient goes into acute kidney injury, of switching from vacuronium to cisatricurium because of um, a renal clearance. Uh, maybe you could comment on that for us. Yeah, I think these are, again, these are uh, important general issues uh, for clinicians uh, uh, to to recognize is that as our patients develop uh, different kinds of organ failure, chief amongst those might be renal or, or, or liver failure, that uh, clearance of, of the many different kinds of medications that we administer to them are going to be important and, and changes might need to be uh, to be made. So uh, agreed. I, I think we, we, in my center at least, we typically... Uh, as a default, always use um, cisatricurium as our 
um, uh, paralytic agent of choice when we're giving a, a continuous infusion. But uh, during the pandemic, I'm sure, um, like many centers around the world, we did see shortages of various medications, including cisatriturium, uh, and had to switch um, to different uh, alternatives. And agree that may, that changed the um, pharmacology, at least as patients develop organ failure. And so, recognizing as as your patients, as you mentioned, develop acute kidney injury or acute liver injury, that um, changing the sedatives, the antibiotics, uh, the narcotics, um, the paralytic agents that these patients might be on could be important as they, um, you know, as their um, sort of uh, organs, organ failures uh, progress. Uh, and also, obviously, depending on what kind of organ support you then provide, you, you know, you could theoretically change some of those medications back if you're providing um, renal replacement therapy, for instance, uh, in these patients. Uh, but these are very important um, um, considerations, uh, again, even outside the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Got you. And the importance of always speaking to your pharmacist. So, so, so maybe let's uh, talk about which interventions or therapies you would strongly caution our audience to avoid or that have been shown to cause harm. Well, again, I, I think, again, specifically in, in um, COVID-associated uh, ARDS, there haven't been many studies specifically looking at the ventilatory management or focused on the lung injury component in COVID-19 that have uh, one, been studied, and two, therefore, shown harm. I mean, we've certainly, again, seen a gamut of, uh, you know, antiviral agents, uh, uh, immunomodulating agents, uh, other interventions like convalescent plasma that have not really been shown to be beneficial uh, in patients uh, for the treatment of uh, COVID-19. But again, this is more in general uh, for, the, for the disease rather than specifically about the respiratory failure or the ARDS that is associated with the disease. So nothing specific um, uh, that's been studied thus far uh, in uh, COVID-19 ARDS uh, that's shown harm or has been subsequently shown to be ineffective. But certainly, as I think the audience is aware, um, many sort of therapeutics that have been tested in COVID-19 patients that have subsequently been shown to be ineffective or potentially harmful. So with that in mind, maybe we could go back a step then just to a straightforward ARDS and not specifically to COVID. Uh, which therapies should uh, clinicians not be practicing in 2021? Yeah, I, I, again, I think uh, in general for the routine management of these patients, I think things that we've learned over the years or uh, that have not been for, for all comers that are not particularly beneficial are things like the early use of high-frequency oscillation. Uh, so that was shown in two trials to be uh, perhaps not not effective, and in the Canadian uh, study, oscillate uh, perhaps a signal towards harm. So that that shouldn't be uh, routinely used as a method of ventilatory support in patients with ARDS uh, from COVID-19 or not. But again, in those you know we did subsequently find out that in patients who have refractory hypoxemia uh, and a PF ratio perhaps below 64 uh, millimeters of mercury, that uh, in an individual patient data meta-analysis suggested that in those patients the use of rescue high-frequency oscillation could be considered. And again, in, in non-ECMO centers that still have access to high-frequency oscillation uh, or for patients who are not ECMO candidates, that might be a choice if they develop refractory hypoxemia. I think the routine use of inhaled um, vasodilators like nitric oxide, again, um, you know, studies demonstrate uh, a variable effect on oxygenation, typically improves it, but may not be very durable, but that's not translated in, into a mortality benefit. 
and there's a you know a chance of that increased risk of uh, acute kidney injury with the use of nitric oxide, and certainly it's an expensive intervention. So again, the routine use of inhaled nitric oxide um, in these patients uh, would not make sense. And then I, I think finally, maybe the third one to highlight is again the sort of routine use of aggressive um, lung recruitment maneuvers, uh, probably also not indicated um, in these patient population. Uh, routinely, again, the results from the alveolar recruitment trial, which used a relatively aggressive strategy uh, to open the lung and then to titrate PEEP um, after performing the recruitment maneuver, not only showed that it, was, uh, it wasn't beneficial, but again, there was a signal towards harm in those patients. So I think those three interventions uh, are good examples of things that should not be routinely applied to ARDS patients um, um, with or without uh, COVID-19. Great. And let's look to the future. So there's been a number of therapies on the horizon um, uh, that uh, we're still waiting for data to show benefit. And maybe you could um, highlight a couple of them that you're uh, keen to see whether or not they uh, show um, improvement in uh, outcomes. One that springs to mind is uh, vitamin C and uh, thiamine, simply because it had a lot of uh, airspace uh, in septic shock prior to COVID-19. Um, and yet that still seems to be going on uh, for COVID art. So maybe your thoughts on that and any other interventions um, that we should be looking out for. Yeah, I think maybe to start with your question about vitamin C and thiamine, again, I haven't at the moment, I mean, not, not uh, no uh, compelling data about uh, its uh, utility in patients with septic shock. I think I haven't seen yet any um, um, high quality data uh, specifically in patients with COVID-19 associated ARDS, but again, I look forward to seeing the results of uh, clinical trials studying that intervention specifically in this uh, patient subgroup. So I would, again, caution uh, the audience that uh, until we have um, the results of these high-quality data, and, I'm, and really that means uh, hopefully a peer-reviewed publication or at least a preprint for people to, um, uh, you know, look over and, and, uh, and examine with the data with some healthy skepticism uh, rather than uh, uh, evidence or changes in management by press release. Um, other interventions that I think that are being widely studied, and we should have some more data about, again, is the early explosion around awake prone positioning. So prone positioning in the patients who are not yet intubated, perhaps they're on high-flow nasal oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, whether awake proning in these patients would be useful. I'm aware of at least two uh, or three um, uh, randomized control trials that are currently ongoing, looking at the utility of awake prone positioning uh, in patients with COVID-19. So hopefully, again, more data on the potential utility of that strategy soon. Uh, and then again, as we already discussed earlier, I think, uh, again, there are a number of uh, clinical trials ongoing to examine the optimal timing, patient population, uh, and uh, use of uh, interventions like high-frequency, uh, high-frequency, I apologize, high-flow nasal oxygen uh, or non-invasive uh, ventilation, perhaps delivered by the helmet interface rather than face mask, and again, trying to figure out what the optimal um, um, timing and strategy uh, in COVID-19 patients would be for those interventions. Um, and last, maybe just to quickly mention um, the, the recent um, um, release of information that we were hopeful that, again, the idea that uh, uh, autopsy studies have confirmed that it seems that many COVID-19 uh, ARDF patients do have a significant amount of uh, thromboembolic disease, and this seems to be an important um, uh, character, characteristic of, uh, of this uh, viral infection and disease, that it seems to lead to 
disturbances in the coagulation system leading to more thromboembolic complications. But um, a recent trial, again, showing that, unfortunately, therapeutic levels of anticoagulation uh, in critically ill patients with COVID-19 actually doesn't seem to lead to uh, to a benefit and, in fact, was a signal towards harm. So uh, a therapy that uh, was um, uh, widely considered that could be useful. And, and uh, again, the importance that uh, high-quality data has shown is, uh, is, is not likely beneficial. Yeah, the uh, anticoagulation uh, publication was really interesting because a lot of patients did put uh, patients, a lot of clinicians put patients on high-dose um, uh, anticoagulation and ended up having bleeds. So what anticoagulation strategy um, are you using given the paucity of data? Um, are you going for um, an oxaparin uh, uh, twice daily? Are you going daily? Are you switching to heparin? What do you do in acute kidney injury? There seems to be very little uh, guidance uh, in that uh, regard uh, with good evidence. Agreed. So I think um, so. So at this point, we've 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 done actually what we've done throughout the entire pandemic, which was to stick with giving our patients uh, DBT prophylaxis dosing for um, anticoagulation, and this is uh, in line with the recent um, updated uh, guidance from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign for the management of COVID-19. So uh, in our center, that means providing these patients with um, either unfractionated sub-Q heparin twice a day or three times a day, depending on their body size, or giving them um, again, DBT prophylaxis doses of a low mercury heparin like anoxaparin or, or tinzaparin. Uh, so we, we continued our standard practice and actually didn't alter our, our approach to anticoagulation um, in the pandemic. And we tried to enroll eligible patients into the anticoag into the um, into the uh, uh, trials that we're enrolling patients for for uh, anticoagulation. And how are you going about uh, determining if patients have uh, thromboembolic events? I mean, one of the big challenges we had initially was uh, getting a CAT scan, uh, a CT chest angio, um, in the COVID area where there's limited PPE. Now there is a whole lot more PPE, so we can do that. Um, how do you go about it? What role are you using for D-dimers? Is there a specific level that you're using, or is it based on clinical assessment, a sudden change in oxygenation? And when would you pull the trigger on treating, even if you don't uh, have a proven diagnosis? Yeah, so I think, again, we, we've actually not, at least in my center, changed our approach to this very much, except, again, as you mentioned, Dominique, in the early uh, part of the pandemic, we were very concerned about moving these patients to the hospital and getting some you know, diagnostic testing. So certainly we we did far fewer uh, CAT scans at the beginning. Um, I think we had fewer um, uh, ultrasound technologists coming to do uh, um, venous leg dopplers, for instance, in patients that we were concerned about, uh, and we were measuring D-dimers. Um, again, I would say that we were collecting a lot of this information, especially on things like D-dimers, ferritin, uh, and some of these other inflammatory or thromboembolic markers, more for research purposes than we were to affect clinical changes. We'd actually didn't then and still don't have a D-dimer cutoff in which we would initiate therapeutic anticoagulation. Um, and we still use our uh, clinical assessment and clinical suspicion, as you sort of mentioned, like sudden changes in oxygenation, unilateral leg swelling, you know, some, some, some sort of signal, um, perhaps a, a, a point of care uh, echocardiography that suggests uh, increasing RV dysfunction. Again, that might be consistent with a new thromboembolic event. So, we take our, our clinical assessment, and in these patients now, um, exactly as you mentioned, now that we have more PPE and more comfort in sending these patients for diagnostic scanning, we would either send them for a, 
a contrast CT of the chest to rule out a pulmonary embolism, or we might get like Dopplers if we feel the symptoms are coming from um, the extremities or, or whatnot. So we actually, again, have, hadn't changed our approach to the, to the management or the, the diagnosis or management of uh, thromboembolic disease and uh, use the same clinical assessments and protocols that we had even in the pre-pandemic era. Thanks, Eddie. So I want to circle back to two comments you made earlier at the beginning of uh, the podcast. The one uh, was regarding early intubation, and I'm going to come back to you and ask, you know, uh, where do you see us uh, going? Should we, is it early, is it late, or should we just be back to how it was beforehand? The second question, and I'm hoping you deal with this one first, is the role of social media and the, 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 the panic that ensued due to a new illness and our desire to that we had to find new treatments for this new illness where, as I think, as you rightly said at the podcast last year, um, don't go looking for new treatments. Instead, we should focus on current treatments that we know are working. Maybe you could comment on both of those for us. Yeah, sure. To, to, to take your point, I think it. it uh, uh, I, I would say my, my thoughts on that remain the same. I think like like everything in the world and in life, uh, everything's got its pros and cons, and I think social media fits into that um, that nicely. And I, I think I mean uh, I think that social media has been a boom, um, especially for us in the medical uh, profession and the healthcare profession, because it does it's a, it's an easy and quick way to disseminate uh, information. Uh, for instance, you know new publications, new trial results, when to expect a presentation of a of the latest uh, management guidelines, um, upcoming conferences, way, ways to connect with people, uh, to connect with professional societies, to connect with information, um, and to um, to raise uh, uh, questions, to develop hypotheses, and to vet controversy. So there's a lot of pluses uh, for social media, and it's a relatively democratic uh, platform, right? Um, many many people from all over the world uh, can access this. Um, this uh, uh, relatively easily uh, compared to some traditional outlets like uh, paywalls for uh, peer-reviewed journals, um, certain websites, uh, this sort of thing. But unfortunately, the downside, like we saw early in the pandemic, is that it's also, as a uh, as a outlet, is an unvetted uh, free-for-all in some ways, right? And again, I sort of use the metaphor of drinking from the fire hose. Like, I mean, you could read tweets, and I certainly will admit uh, that I was guilty of that early in the pandemic. Like in hours, you could get conflicting anecdotes, case reports, uh, case series, data, if you will, from various places about various ways of managing the same problem, often in complete conflict with each other. And I think, again, that, you know, this is a relatively unmonitored, unvetted uh, setting for these kinds of reports. And again, the discerning uh, clinician just needs to be careful um, and have again a healthy level of skepticism uh, when um, when accessing this and and again um, asking the right questions uh, maybe consulting with other colleagues uh, figuring out what people are doing and again until we have high quality clinical data and rigorous clinical evidence to help um, guide management we really should stick to doing what we know works and then when something compelling comes along in terms of data and evidence, and we can re-examine or change the way that we, uh, that we do things. Um, to your second question about early intubation, again, this is something I think, again, is a very good example uh, of a pendulum that has swung in the pandemic. Um, we spoke a little bit earlier about how early in the pandemic with a lot of unknowns, concerns around um, risks to healthcare workers, for instance, of 
aerosol generating procedures, uh, intubation, for instance, in uncontrolled settings, um, like in an emergency or in a cardiac arrest situation or rapid deterioration situation, um, uncertainty around the safety of uh, traditional support, non-invasive support strategies like non-invasive ventilation and or high-flow nasal oxygen. Um, there was this movement early to, uh, to the use of early intubation. Uh, again, uh, I think based on just uh, the feeling and certainly in some overwhelmed jurisdictions, this might have been prudent because uh, patients could deteriorate rapidly and there may not have been enough human resources to mobilize quickly uh, to rescue some of these patients if we waited until they uh, deteriorated um, to a life-threatening state. But I think what we've recognized now, again, as uh, things fortunately in many places in the world have settled down a bit, we've had a more stable supply of PPE, we have a better understanding of uh, the risk of transmission uh, and how some of these support strategies can work. I think we've sort of slowly swung back to um, uh, what you mentioned sort of as our usual practice in that patients who are good or reasonable candidates for non-invasive oxygenation strategies like high-flow nasal oxygen or non-invasive ventilation uh, could receive those in a monitored setting so that if they do continue to deteriorate, they could go for intubation. Um, and then, then we use the usual criteria, if you will, or the clinical assessments that clinicians employ at the bedside to make decisions around whether patients are suitable uh, or require intubation at that time and really not try to alter that in some artificial way because they have COVID to say that they need to be done earlier um, than, than, than usual. And I think, uh, I think again, as the pandemic is evolved, we've moved back to where uh, we started at uh, pre-pandemic level. That's pretty interesting. The last thing that we haven't chatted about is ECMO. Um, so maybe you could uh, tell us, you know, which patients are you sending for ECMO and what challenges have COVID-19 odds posed for you in that regard? Yeah, so um, again, uh, and not to be unfortunately boring, but we're we using basically the same uh, criteria that we used for, uh, to consider patients for ECMO as we did uh, pre-pandemic, and those are essentially Again, best on the base, best available data that we have, which is the OLIA trial. So using those inclusion criteria, uh, so patients uh, who are under the age of 65, uh, adults with a reversible cause of respiratory failure, uh, don't have too many pre-morbid or comorbid illnesses that would preclude a, a full and meaningful recovery. They don't already have established multi-organ failure, um, and then meeting one of the three uh, sort of uh, inclusion criteria from EOLIA, which was uh, sort of severe hypoxemia. Um, you know, more severe in three hours, less severe over six hours. And then and the third criteria was one of uh, sort of hypercapnia with refractory acidosis despite optimal mechanical ventilation. And so we're using the same um, criteria that we were uh, pre-pandemic. I think what we have learned over the course of the pandemic here, here's an area where we don't have any new randomized control trial data, but we have some relatively large um, and larger cohort studies that sort of shed some light on, on ACMO. Early in the early in the um, pandemic, uh, reports from China, which was hit with the uh, with COVID-19 first, uh, showed dismal survival in the zero to three percent range, and sort of suggesting that maybe we should not be applying ECMO uh, to these patients. Um, but again, they, they, those were being employed late under the pressures of uh, limited human resources and um, and heavy burden of. Uh, of uh, patients in their ICUs. And then as the pandemic evolved, um, sort of, again, the judicious use of ECMO uh, sort of earlier as we would in normal times 
and not as a last-ditch rescue maneuver. Uh, we saw from reports from um, Paris, uh, published in the uh, Lancet for Spiritual Medicine, and uh, again, a very large, a larger study from uh, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization suggesting you could get results that were relatively similar uh, to uh, ECMO support for non-COVID-related ARDS. So I think employing uh, similar uh, inclusion criteria or strategies that we did pre-pandemic, um, applying it within the confines of, uh, of um, early application amongst good candidates and not as a last-ditch rescue um, intervention uh, could, could lead to results uh, that are very similar to um, non-COVID-related ARDS. Great. And in terms of the challenges or the unique challenges that uh, COVID-19 posed in managing patients with uh, ECMO, um, what has your experience been? Yeah, I think we've heard a lot from uh, many different centers. Like, uh, it's, it's run the gamut. And again, part of this might be the interaction of uh, the extracorporeal circuit with the fact that COVID does seem to be a, a thrombotic um, um, disease. And so we had many centers uh, reporting or many of my colleagues reporting that um, they had many more uh, circuit-related complications, thrombosing the oxygenator, requiring frequent circuit changes, thrombosing um, the cannula sites, um, requiring higher degrees of anticoagulation. Uh, so we certainly heard a lot of what you might have expected from hearing that COVID-19 is an extremely thrombotic uh, situation and, you know, some dramatic stories of, you know, patients thrombosing circuits and hours and having a few circuit changes, which sometimes never happen in the course of a, of a ECMO run happening a few times a day in some of these very sick patients, um, to, the, to the complete opposite side. like So in our experience, we actually had very few um, or relatively similar to baseline, if you will, thrombotic complications, but we actually had a higher incidence of intracranial hemorrhage in our COVID patients. And again, well described that um, you know, COVID-19 seemed to be associated in some patients with multifocal intracranial hemorrhages. And for whatever reason, we certainly saw in our ECMO population that we had many more intracranial hemorrhages um, than we had in non-COVID-related uh, ARDS patients, um, having not changed our approach to anticoagulation at all for ECMO um, pre-pandemic uh, to pandemic. So, and, and, and again, other centers uh, in the world that we've uh, spoken to have had similar uh, experiences from that point of view. So we've seen the whole gamut of the challenges um, related to these patients. Um, and again, just that uh, some of them um, are very extremely hypoxemic, requiring uh, deep sedation, very high ECMO flows. Um, so some of these patients, um, very challenging to, to manage, unfortunately. So true. So I want to turn to the long-term effects. So I've been struck by the number of patients that you will see uh, one to two months into uh, the course of their illness that um, are still on high flow and sometimes on 80% uh, FiO2 of 40 liters of flow. Um, what's your experience in that regard been and what's the long-term, uh, how are we going to address this issue of patients having um, essentially crippled lungs for the rest of their life. Sometimes they wean down to six liters, but they have a, the slightest, uh, you know, chest infection, and they're back to these really high oxygen requirements. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a major challenge and a major, a major area of um, investigation. Like we need to have obviously better data um, on what the natural history. Uh, is of uh, some of these, uh, you know, COVID, I guess, uh, now uh, sort of said long haulers or uh, patients who seem to have persistent symptoms. 
a very slow or incomplete resolution from COVID. Um, you know, we're fortunate that we have a, a, a large and growing body of literature around patients who have persistent or chronic critical illness and the incomplete recovery that some patients can have when they survive critical illness. And so we certainly expect that um, at a minimum, unfortunately, these patients who come to the ICU and then leave the ICU will have similar um, morbidity and decrements in health-related quality of life and activities of daily living and this sort of thing that patients with ARDS from non-COVID, not from COVID, would have. And, and again, now we're understanding that there might be this extra layer of uh, morbidity that these patients would suffer. Uh, again, there, there are many uh, studies ongoing around the world um, that will help shed extra light on, on what the incidence of these issues are, how persistent they are, um, how modifiable they might be with rehabilitation uh, and these sorts of things. Um, just to highlight that my colleague, Dr. Margaret Harridge here in Toronto, who's uh, been a leader at uh, the follow-up of these patients uh, for ARDS and critical illness in the past, is currently um, the investigator of a very large Canadian study looking at this, uh, the long-term effects of COVID. So we'll have more information um, uh, on that as well. And I think the other interesting question that needs to be answered in some of these questions, as you mentioned, who are extremely fragile, have extremely damaged lungs, is um, what proportion of these patients could be candidates for lung transplantation? And I'm sure that many people in the audience have already read about the various, again, case, uh, mainly case reports. Some centers reporting a small case series of transplanting patients, both acutely and maybe subacutely. So again, some of these longer um, uh, 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 supported patients, either on mechanical ventilation, non-invasive strategies, some even uh, long um, supports on ECMO, and then ultimately getting transplanted um, for this uh, situation. So again, I think that might be uh, uh, a potential uh, intervention for some of these patients who agreed have very, very low um, reserve, uh, pulmonary reserve following their infection. And at some point, uh, you know, might uh, need to be evaluated, followed and evaluated for potential uh, lung transplantation. Yeah, we definitely need that data and uh, we'll look out for it. Um, Eddie, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, I'm sure the ATS community appreciates the insights that you've given us. Um, I want to give you uh, the last word in terms of what key messages do you want to leave our audience with, and if there's anything that we haven't covered in this podcast that you definitely want them uh, to know. Eddie? Uh, yeah, so I, 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 think, I, I, I think these are the same messages I gave from the first uh, podcast, and really just the, the two points I wanted to emphasize, I think we've already discussed. The first is that um, until we have compelling data and rigorous results from uh, clinical trials, we really should stick to, um, you know, the evidence-based management uh, of our patients and uh, sort of doing what we know works until something uh, tells us that we should do something different. That's really one key message I want to leave with the audience. And second is how this pandemic has really um, shed light on the importance of um, what Derek Angus wrote about in an editorial of the learning while doing and how many of the important breakthroughs that we've had in this pandemic have been in uh, health systems and, and uh, um, study centers embedding clinical trials to give us rapid evidence and answers to these important questions while uh, providing routine care. And so, for instance, the recovery platform in the United Kingdom has been instrumental in helping us to answer important questions on how best to manage these patients, sort of putting our eggs in those baskets that, on interventions like dexamethasone that seem to work and trying to move us away from interventions 
uh, like hydroxychloroquine um, that are not working. So I think um, international multi-center collaboration um, and embedding clinical trials um, into um, our, our routine clinical care really has been the key, I think an important key in this pandemic to helping us uh, quickly understand what works and what doesn't. And so we could focus on delivering the best care to our patients. Yeah, that's really important. And, and maybe I'll ask you this one last question. The importance of preparation, because, I mean, we had a 2009 H1N1 uh, pandemic, and we had a, a 2019 <laughs> COVID pandemic. It, it's almost inevitable that, you know, in the, maybe 10, if if, if like it'd be 20 years, there's going to be another pandemic. Um, yet at the same time, we tend to... Um, want to not think about the future. It's almost as though like one year, two years go, goes by and then suddenly it's a case of, oh, we don't have to worry about that anymore and we just get on with our lives. If this pandemic taught us something, it was the importance of preparation. Maybe you could share with us, you know, if, if you had to prepare for a pandemic in the next uh, couple of years, like where would your priorities be in terms of ARDS and ICU management? Well, I think you know we've learned many lessons, and and uh, and I think maybe one chief amongst those is in terms of exactly as you said, it's preparation, and and I think part of the at least maybe to speak about the North American context um, is uh, just because I'm more familiar with that is that I think both in Canada and the United States, unfortunately, leading up to this pandemic, we were a bit ill prepared, uh, despite learning the lessons of the past, because we've had uh, challenges in public health funding. Uh, and public health epidemiology, which certainly has played such a crucial role uh, in this pandemic. Um, and so I think maybe one of the lessons learned is that those investments, which, again, don't seem to pay off in the short term or don't seem to have tangible effects in the short term, obviously, once a pandemic hits, are so critically important. And so underfunding uh, those agencies or those uh, our colleagues in those fields uh, will be critical to helping to fight the next pandemic. And second, in terms of preparation, I think, you know, like I think the public health um, service is, uh, you know, uh, having adequate and well-monitored stockpiles of PPE and these sorts of things for the next pandemic so we could be better prepared, um, at least at the start uh, of that situation as we were caught a bit off guard for this one. And then finally, again, it's like in, in embedding these systems and creating true learning um, healthcare systems. Um, again, like the recovery is a great example um, and using sort of leveraging the power of these uh, this kind of infrastructure and you know entities like the WHO and ongoing efforts from Oxford like Azaric um, sort of have these systems in place to help us respond quickly in the event of a pandemic. So we certainly had data being collected and clinical trials being launched much faster than we probably have uh, in pandemics past. But again, continuing to build, nurture, and expand this important infrastructure will make us, um, you know, uh, hopefully even better prepared for when the next pandemic is. Well spoken and a great way to end the podcast. Thank you very much, Eddie. We really appreciate you being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me back. A big thank you to Dr. Eddie Fan, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.